0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Going.
2: How is it going for you on this lovely day? It's actually not a lovely day. It's a miserable day. I haven't seen the sun in a week and I'm gonna kill myself. (laughs) Um, so we have a lot of stuff to get to today. Um Trump's chief of staff basically admitted, like, pandemic. Pandemic? No, we're not gonna actually do anything about the pandemic. Um, We're waving the white flag. AOC also went on CNN, and uh, she was asked a question about Obama that I need to share her answer with you of, and um, it's not – I don't like her answer, i got to be honest. I really don't like her answer. I think it's – I think that uh, we're never going to move forward and get the change we need if we don't reckon with the real legacy of Obama and uh, the ways in which he could have been significantly better. Kanye West went on Joe Rogan's podcast. I will be making fun of Kanye West. (laughs) Um, And then later on in the show, I have for you Hillary Clinton did an interview with Axios and said something um, which is one of the central delusions of the corporate Democrats. We'll get to that. And then more on the Joe Biden, Hunter Biden thing. Uh, because it is, the real scandal in that is not even necessarily what happened with Joe and Hunter in regards to Burisma and whatnot. The real scandal is how much the media is refusing to admit the obvious, and um, it drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. Like, you could talk about the corruption and say, by the way, Donald Trump is perhaps even more corrupt, because look at what's going on with his family and the money that they make and where they get it from, And but the media never goes in that direction. They really just kind of cover for the biden's and i think it's deeply deeply dishonest and so i have a lot to say about it so anyway without uh further ado let's let's jump into it and um you know i actually want to kind of pull the old switcheroo real quick and maybe ah, fuck i gotta get a graphic for it hold on one sec hold on one sec I'm gonna I'm gonna switch up my opening story at the last moment here. I gotta play you the Kamala clip. I have to play you the Kamala clip. This is just too much. I'm probably gonna get a copyright strike on YouTube, but um, I 60 min this 60 minutes clip is out of this world, and so I have to play it for you. Okay, hold on. All right, here we go. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden both went on 60 Minutes. And um, I want to show you a part with Kamala here that really, really gets under my skin. Um, I'm going to explain why I think the questions are biased from a right-wing perspective, but also the way she handles this is probably the worst possible way to handle it. Take a look.
3: they are very different in the policies that you've supported in the past. You're considered the most liberal United States Senator. I, I Somebody said that, and it actually was Mike Pence on the debate stage. But yeah. <laughs> well, actually, the nonpartisan GovTrack has rated you as the most liberal Senator. You supported the Green New Deal. You supported Medicare for All. You've supported legalizing marijuana. Joe Biden doesn't support those things. So are you gonna bring the policies those progressive policies that you supported as Senator into a Biden administration? What
4: I will do, and I promise you this, and this is what Joe wants me to do, this was part of our deal. I will always share with him my lived experience as it relates to any issue that we confront. And I promised Joe that I will give him that
3: perspective and always be honest with him. And is that a socialist or progressive perspective? (laughs) No.
4: No, it is the perspective of, of a woman who grew up a, a, a black child in America who was also a prosecutor who also has a mother who arrived here at the age of 19 from India who also, you know, likes hip-hop. <laughs> like, what do you want to know?
3: Well, I want to give you, I want to give you the opportunity to address this because, At the Republican National Convention, President Trump made the case that Joe Biden is going to be nothing more than a Trojan horse for socialist policies, for the left wing of the Democratic Party. Are you going to push those policies when you're vice president? I am not going to
4: be confined to Donald Trump's definition of who I or anybody else is. Um, And I think America has learned that that would be a mistake. So just just to button
3: that up, because you have fought for Medicare for All. That's not something that Joe Biden supports. If you become vice president, would you say to a President Biden, you know what, let's we should really be pushing for Medicare for all, not a public option. That's just not gonna do it. That's not my value. I would not have joined the ticket if I didn't
4: support what Joe was proposing. And so our plan includes expanding on Everything that Joe, together with President Obama, created with the Affordable Care Act. By contrast.
2: I mean, it's almost beyond parody, right? So when pushed, when pushed, she retreats to, I wouldn't have joined the ticket with Joe if I didn't agree with Joe. Well, what happened? At the beginning of the answer, you said, oh, I'm going to tell him my perspective and always be honest with him about my perspective. By the end, it's, hey, listen, I'm always going to agree with the person who's leading the ticket. Which is it? Which is it? That's a contradiction. makes no sense. You have to pick one of those two. You can't have both of them. Now, a lot of people, I tweeted about this, and a lot of people responded to me and said, I don't think those questions are biased in a right-wing direction. You're wrong, for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, the analysis that she's citing is absolutely absurd. Um, They don't take into account the reality. So, for example, yes, Kamala Harris signed up to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, but when she ran for president, she proposed her own health care plan. That was not at all Medicare for All. Under that analysis, they don't take that into consideration, that she actually backed off of Medicare for All under the slightest bit of bad faith scrutiny. She immediately ran away from it. So, when she signed up to Bernie Sanders' bill, that was all for PR reasons, because she knew she was going to run for president, and she saw where, you know, the winds of the country were heading, and actually even more so for the Democratic Party. It's like 80 or 90 percent of Democratic voters who want Medicare for all. So she went like this and said, okay, I'm going to go in that direction. She signed on to the bill knowing that it would never even come up for a vote. And if it did come up for a vote, I got news for you. She wouldn't really vote the way that she was pretending that she would have. And we know this, again, because she proposed her own health care bill, that was not at all Medicare for all. So why does that not override the stupid PR nonsense blitz that she did before she ran for president? This idea that she's to the left of Bernie? They say, oh, she's more liberal than Bernie. If you believe that, you simply don't know anything about politics, and that analysis is beyond bogus. Anybody with a functioning brain understands that that's absurd. So, but the reason She throws that out there. That's been a right-wing talking point recently. She throws that out there, and the implication of the host is, hey, obviously being a socialist or being progressive is ridiculous. So are you going to double down on being ridiculous, or are you going to run away from it? Go ahead. So that's the framing of the question. That's the framing of the question. Kamala immediately took the bait and was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know what that even means. Progressive? I never even heard the word progressive before. Or socialist? I don't even know what you're talking about. So, um, she goes from. She's asked, like, okay, you're going to bring your perspective. What is that perspective? Is it a progressive perspective? Is it a socialist perspective? And she responds by saying, No, no. It's about my lived experience. It's about the fact that I'm a woman. I'm a black child in America. I'm a prosecutor. Um, I have a mother who came from India, and I like hip-hop. I want you to take note of what she did there, because this is just quintessential corporate Democrat stuff. When asked about policy, Green New Deal, Medicare for All, and labels, socialist or progressive, what did she do? Dodged, went right to, say it with me, identity. Identity. Asked about policy and label, dodges and says, hey, I'm a woman. I was a black child in America, a prosecutor, my mother came from India, and I like hip hop. Are we just gonna keep letting them slap us in the face, spit in our eye, disrespect us? Is it that easy to dupe the left? Like, all you gotta do is check off some identity boxes, trot them out there, and say, hey, now if you object, you're a bigot. Now if you say, hey, I don't like this, you're xenophobic. Oh, you don't like what she said? I guess you don't like strong black women. I've, e- I've literally already gotten, in response to me saying, terrible questions and terrible answers on Twitter, I've already gotten tweets from blue-check idiots who are like, obviously, you don't know anything about black women. And the answer she gave when she was laughing, that's her way of stopping herself from telling off the questioner. By the way, what could she have said? Well, I mean... I I have no issue with her not adopting the label socialist. In fact, I've argued on this show that even for just strategic reasons, we should embrace social democracy. I have no problem with that. What I have a problem with is the running away from popular policies at a 1,000 miles an hour. And Democrats don't even have the basic political instincts to recognize when you have the people on your side or what's supposed to be your side. So in other words, even if she doesn't believe in Green New Deal and Medicare for All, and she doesn't, how do you not have the political instincts when you're asked that question to go with, yeah, of course I support those policies. Green New Deal, when the original polls came out, I don't know what it's at now to be fair, but the original polls on Green New Deal were 70% or 80% of the country supported it. You want to know why? Because the New Deal was wildly popular, and when you talk about a Green New Deal, you're talking about a move towards renewable and green technology that creates millions of jobs. What's not to love about that? What's not to love about in the long term getting off of fossil fuels and creating millions of jobs? So she could have flipped it right back on the reporter and said, of course I'm not going to run away from those things. One of them polls at 70 or 80 percent. Another one polls at um, 70 percent now nationally. And in some polls, even 51 percent of Republicans support Medicare for all. I don't know if you noticed, we have a pandemic going on. A pandemic. That's a health care crisis. And, yes, my solution to the health care crisis is to give everybody health care and save $5 trillion in the process. That's what Medicare for All does. You know, my approach is to catch up to the rest of the developed world and not have 45,000 people die every year because they don't have basic health care. That's my approach. But instead, run away. They run away from their own shadow, corporate Democrats. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen. And this is what happens, by the way, when you don't believe in anything. When you don't believe in anything and you're asked an accusatory question, you're always going to run away. Because, you know, it feels harder to have a spine and to just respond and say, yes. Like, it actually, you would need to believe in it to have the nerve to say, yeah, of course, Obviously, I mean, you're you're asking me this question as if it's absurd to believe in these policies when the policies have majority support. So why is the media framing the minority position as the position? You know, she could have said. Joe came to me and picked me because of my record. So did I sponsor those pieces of legislation? Did I say words in support of them? Yes. And so I'm going to bring my voice into the administration, and I'm going to try to push him in a direction more in line with the majority of the American people, and the American people agreed with me on Green New Deal and Medicare for All. She couldn't do it. She couldn't say it. Instead, it was nervous laughter. Deflect from the conversation about policy and labels and go to identity. It's almost like, oh, you're asking me a tough question. Have you noticed that I'm a woman and I was a black child and I was a prosecutor and I had a mom who came from India and I like hip hop? That's like, that's sending the message of if you push me too hard, I'm go- I'll just keep hiding behind identity and then flip it back on you and say, maybe you should be careful when you're being so accusatory against a black woman.
5: Oh, man.
2: It's just, it's so weaselly. It's so weaselly. And what drives me crazy is that our system is so corrupt and our politicians are so stupid that they literally don't even realize that in the middle of a climate apocalypse and a pandemic, you have to at least pretend to be in favor of the solutions, Green New Deal and Medicare for All. I mean, FDR is rolling over in his grave right now. JFK is rolling over in his grave right now, and he wasn't even that far left. But he did push for universal health care. You want to know why? Because it's obvious that that's a good thing. You can't even sell the idea of everybody getting health care as if it's a positive thing, clearly. You run away from when the Republicans say, socialized medicine. You run away from that? These guys want to give everybody health care. No, I don't. No, I definitely don't. Cucks. Jesus Christ, it's so hard to watch. The only reason they're even up as much as they are is because Trump is so legendarily abysmal, just out of this world abysmal, just mind-numbingly terrible, doesn't do anything populist even though he pretended to be a populist, servant of the establishment, loyal servant of the establishment, and now we have a pandemic and we have a collapsing economy, and so this is just a wave election against Trump, but Corporate Democrats are going to misinterpret that as if, like, no, 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 we're winning because corporate centrism is awesome. That's what they're going to feel like. And they're going to look at answers like this from Kamala and say, she nailed it. And this is what you can expect a lot more of in the future. Anytime you're asked about labels or policies, just hide behind identity. Hide behind identity, and you'll be fine. Because that's taboo. The interviewer isn't allowed to say, I didn't ask you about where your mother came from, or what your skin color is. I didn't ask you anything about that. I asked you about Medicare for All and Green New Deal and whether or not you're progressive or socialist. That's what I asked you. You want to answer that question or you want to dodge again? Can't say that if you say that, oh, you were too aggressive against a black woman, bigoted. Kill me. Kill me, kill me, kill me. Or as the uh, graphic I tweeted the other day said, what was it again? Stab my balls with a pencil. Okay. All right, next. Let me plug back in the computer. The beepy McBeepington caught me off guard, of course, because it always does. Okay. All right, let's make fun of the Trump people. Mark Meadows is Trump's chief of staff, and he went on CNN, he spoke to Jake Tapper, and he admitted something here that got him in trouble, but there's no way it's in it. This was honest.
1: Their website is talking about, well, now we think the spread is coming from small social groups and family groups. First it was large groups. Now it's small groups. It's now it's in, and now it's well, so that exactly, all sorts of places. Well, that's because exactly the, the is out of control. So, so here's what we have to do. We're not going to control the pandemic. We are going to control the fact that we get uh, vaccines, therapeutics, and other mitigation why aren't areas. Why are we going to get the pandemic? But, because it is a contagious virus, just like the flu. Yeah, but why not make contagious. efforts to contain it? Well, we are making efforts to contain it. By running all over the country and not wearing a mask? Jake, we, can, we can in get story. into the back, back and forth. Let, let me just say this, is what we need to do is make sure that we have the proper mitigation factors, whether it's therapies or vaccines or treatments, to make sure that people don't die from this. But to suggest that we're going to actually quarantine all of America, I know lock said, down you know, our I kids. Know saying that. well, that they are. Joe Biden's saying that he says lock everybody Look down. No, we're going to have, we're gonna have not, a dark. We're going to have that. a dark winter. We're going to have a dark winter. That's what health officials say. That's what, what health officials say. No, no, that it's what, what? You, no. What? no, no we that's Joe Biden's words. Uh, Jake, Jake you're, let's be honest. let Let's be honest here. The health officials did not say dark winter. Those were Joe Biden's words when he was we look at the end, health official yeah. i think well, he was, he was, was quoting he was, william we, well, when we look when we look at the number of cases increasing what we have to do is make sure that we fight it with therapeutics and vaccines take proper medication factors in terms of social distancing and masks when we can and when we when we look at this well, we're, we're going to defeat it, Jake, because what we are, we're Americans. We do that, and this president is leading while Joe Biden is sitting there Mark, suggesting that, that we're, we're going to mandate masks. The president mask. is holding rallies all, That's all over the country. That's correct. No in mask, fact, we're leaving, we're, leaving, no we're, masks required, no distancing. We, we, there have already been, according to health officials, contact tracing. There have already been cases of individuals in Minnesota and in Washington, D.C., and in Oklahoma, that got the virus at these Trump rallies that Dr. Fauci himself called a super-spreader event, the one with well, the White and House. there's also that been contact tracing,
2: So I don't know if you caught her at the beginning there, but he admitted it. He said, quote, we aren't going to control the pandemic. I'm not sure if he used the word pandemic or virus. We aren't going to control the virus or we aren't going to control the pandemic. He admitted it. He said that. And then he went on to say, Really, what our, our goal is now is to get the vaccine as soon as possible or get the therapeutics, the medicine, as soon as possible and get it across the country. That's, that's what he's saying. Now, by the way, last night, stumbled across a story in, I believe it's El Paso, Texas, and some other places around the country. The outbreak is so bad, the hospitals are at capacity or beyond capacity and when people show up, they have to airlift them to other facilities. And they're telling people, hey, listen, don't show up basically unless like you're on the verge of death. We've been in this pandemic for a long time, and we still have issues like that, where the virus is so immensely out of control that facilities are totally full I'm sorry, but that is without a doubt a failure of leadership. It's a failure of leadership at the federal level, it's a failure of leadership at the state level. So when he says, "Hey, we're not going to control the pandemic," that's him waving the white flag. That's the Trump administration waving the white flag. And the evidence of it is Jake Tapper's pointing out, beyond just what he's saying here, the evidence of it is five people around Mike Pence were just diagnosed with COVID-19. response to that, is he going to follow the federal guidelines and quarantine No, he's not. In fact, his schedule is exactly the same. So five people he was in close contact with have COVID-19. Instead of quarantining, he's going to continue with his normal schedule. Trump's rallies, which he's been doing around the country, experts are saying, just so you know, these are super spreader events. And wherever he goes, he leaves in his wake a lot more cases of COVID-19. And then in turn, a lot more people go to the hospital and some people die. So his own rallies are super spreader events, his own rallies. So when Meadows says, well, we we should, where we can, wear masks and do social distancing, they're not even doing it when they go places. You can't even control COVID-19 in the White House. Why should I think you're going to control it in any states or the country? You can't even control it in the White House guys, listen, I don't have all the answers. I'm not an expert. I'm not a doctor, okay? And doctors, there are many doctors who disagree. But here's what I do know. What I do know is a policy as simple as a national mask mandate save at least 100,000 lives. 100,000 lives. So just the fact that these dipshits are not doing a national mask mandate means they're dooming... Americans to die, and it's the equivalent of roughly two Vietnam Wars with the American casualties, because there was over a million Vietnamese who were killed. But there was about, I think, 56,000 or so Americans who died in the Vietnam War. So they basically want to have two Vietnams, because they refuse to do the basic thing of a national mask mandate. I'm sorry, listen, that's not too much to ask. I'm as big on individual freedom as anybody. I always say that when it comes to social issues, I'm very libertarian in the sense that I think live and let live is the way to go. I want the government out of people's lives. But if you're telling me that a national mask mandate, something that simple, can save over 100,000 lives, well, that's a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer because it's not really a restriction on your freedom any more so than a seatbelt law is a restriction on your freedom, and there's nobody in today's day and age going around screaming at the government to, you know, let me live free or die, I'm not going to buckle this up. Just a national mask mandate. Now, you can get into, well, how do you enforce it and all those questions. Those are legitimate questions, and I, again, I don't know the answer to those things. But if you set a culture from the top down of, hey, it's the American thing to do, it's the patriotic thing to do, to wear a mask whenever you go out somewhere in public, whenever you're indoors in, in an enclosed area with other people, That could save over 100,000 lives. They won't even do that. They won't even do that. So everybody around Pence just got COVID. He's not quarantining. Trump is going around the country with these super spreader events. By the way, actively part of his rally slash stand-up routine, he's making fun of the media for continuing to talk about COVID nonstop. They won't even do a national mask mandate. And now his chief of staff is like, we're not going to control the pandemic. Okay. So you're also no longer going to be in the White House. That's, that's what's going to happen. You do understand that, right? That COVID is the most important issue to the American people because it's affecting everybody and everything. So, okay, you're not going to control the pandemic. You're not going to do serious leadership. You're going to be a complete mess like you were from the beginning. Fair enough. Then you're gonzo. You're done. It's over. So, I mean, it, is, it really is quite an admission, isn't it? Yeah, we're going to do the vaccine and the therapeutics. Those are going to come whenever they're going to come. It doesn't matter how many times... Trump picks up the phone and tries to berate a pharma company, which apparently there were reports that he was like, we got to rush the vaccine. And they're like, hey, idiot, the way it works is we have to test to make sure it works. That's why it takes as long as it takes. Because there are steps to ensure it functions. And he's like, no, I just skip the steps. doesn't matter how many times he does that. The therapeutics and the vaccine are going to come when they're going to come. So this is a non-plan. He's broadcasting to the world. We have a non-plan. All right, TikTok. Your ass is about to get kicked to the curb. Okay. <sighs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went on CNN and spoke to Jake Tapper about the election. Um, it's a much longer interview than this. You can go watch the whole thing. They go over a a wide range of issues. You know, she's become a politician. I mean, sounds silly to say, but it's true. And what I mean by that is her politician skills have been sharpened since she's gotten to Washington, and she knows how to successfully dodge, deflect, and obfuscate. And so she's asked about very real substantive differences between the left and Joe Biden, and very artfully she finds a way to say, well, yeah, there are those differences, but they're kind of irrelevant because step number one is getting Trump out, and then it's a matter of who do we want to push when they're in the White House. So, you know, that's basically her line. Her line is, I enthusiastically support Joe, even though we have many disagreements, and I'm going to lobby him to be better on these issues. Um, you know, say what you want about that approach, that strategy, that mindset. I'll just remind everybody, ain't nothing going to happen with Joe. He ain't going left. He is who he is. And you could say, hey, on those merits alone, better than Trump. Fair enough. But don't delude yourself into thinking you're going to push him left and he's somehow going to be like FDR or Noam Chomsky in office. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's incredibly naive. Anyway, that's not the point of this segment. Um, she was asked about Obama. There's actually a decent question from Jake Tapper here. It's a little bit of bait, too, because Jake Tapper knows Obama has a very high approval rating, and so he wants to, like, bait AOC, who's one of the representatives of the left flank in D.C. He wants to bait AOC into, like, attacking Obama, and she doesn't take the bait on it, but you guys know me. I kind of wish she did, because I don't think we're ever going to get real change if we don't acknowledge the failures of everybody who's come before us, and when you try to gloss over those failures and act like in fact they weren't failures okay well then you're going to get more of the same because you're not even really diagnosing what one of the problems was in what led to trump so anyway here's what she said about obama and then we'll break it down do you think the
1: obama presidency was not a progressive presidency
6: no, I think uh, President Obama did everything he could with the limitations of a, of a Republican Senate, and frankly, a Republican-controlled Congress was much of his term. Um, but, you know, I, I think that being said, there were, of course, uh, progressive demands that were, or and progressive wishes that weren't exactly met, but that wasn't solely due uh, to President Obama. We desperately wanted, even to settle for a public option, Uh, during that time, and it frankly wasn't President Obama's fault that didn't happen. You know, I do believe that there are certain areas, like foreign policy, uh, where there was much to be desired. Uh, And I don't believe that, for example, in certain areas, like progressive policy, there wasn't necessarily – it wasn't as progressive as perhaps uh, many folks in this country would have liked. But, you know, if we have an opportunity, if we work hard enough to elect folks like Jamie Harrison, to make sure that we protect seats like Gary Peters. And to make sure that we unseat Republicans like Jimmy Ernst, and we we have the unique, frankly, once-in-a-generation opportunity to have the White House, the Senate, and the House uh, majorities democratically controlled, then I believe we have an obligation to the American people to show what a Democratic administration can actually accomplish and that we can govern and that we can – Truly, have needs and policy that people can feel in their everyday lives that makes voting Democratic worth not just worthwhile, but a, a memorable shift
0: mm-hmm. from
6: just a, a flat line of this idea of, of bipartisanship, which often just becomes Republican manipulation.
2: The main thing I take issue with is when she says Obama did everything he could with the limitations of Congress. And the reason I take issue with that is it's just factually not true. Obama himself admitted in a moment of honesty in an interview, my politics are basically that of a moderate Republican from the 1980s. That's where I fall. That's what I am. That, those are his words, not my words. That's what he said. That's what he said. And he's correct. Those are his politics. So when she comes out here and says, well, he did everything he could with the limitations of Congress. It's not his fault. That's whitewashing his history of not really pushing for the things that at times he pretends like he pushed for. Like she even brings up the public option and says, hey, listen, I mean, what are you going to do? It wasn't his fault. He tried. But that's the thing. He didn't. He didn't try. He brought it up for two and a half seconds, and then he immediately backed off of it under the tiniest bit of pushback from blue dogs and from people like Joe Lieberman. So I need you to understand what somebody would have done in that position had they actually believed in this. Because if you're president and you have a super majority, you know what you do? You call into your office the blue dogs and everybody who's raising a stink about this and saying they don't want to support it, you call them in your office, And you let them know in a very straightforward way, just like how FDR would have done or LBJ would have done, perhaps JFK would have done. And you say to them, listen, this is an opportunity for you. If you support this legislation, if you support Medicare for all, what I'll do is I'm the president. I don't know if you noticed. I have a very high approval rating at the moment. I just got elected. The country loves me. They don't even know you. They don't even care about you. Who are you? I will use my celebrity, my popularity, to go and campaign for you in your state. And I'll use all of the resources of the Democratic Party, which I'm now the head of, to make sure you're fully funded for your next race, and we will crush any primary challenger against you, and we will crush the Republicans who are running against you. You have my word. You will get reelected if you support this piece of legislation. Now, if you don't, I'll make your life a living hell. I'll campaign against you. I'll support a primary challenger against you. The Democratic Party will fund the primary challenge against you. And you don't have a future in this town. I'll tell everybody I know. You're an untouchable. You're unhirable. You think you're going to go from here to a nice cushy lobbyist job? Wrong. Think again. I'll make sure that doesn't happen either. I'll run you out of town. I like them apples. So you tell me. You support the legislation. We're besties. I get you reelected. Or you don't. And we're enemies. You want to pick a fight with the most powerful person in the world? Be my guest. That's what you do if you really believe in it. Now, you might say, oh, my God. Like, I brought this up one time previously, and somebody oh, my God, how authoritarian is that? It's not authoritarian when the American people agree with you on the substantive policy that you're pushing for. That's called good politics. That's what that is. We got 70% of the country wants Medicare for all. If you're twisting arms... To make sure we get Medicare for all, you're a hero. You're a hero. So that's what you do. He didn't do any of that. He was like, yeah, I kind of want the public option. And then the second blue dogs were like, no, I don't think so. He's like, okay, no, no, you're right. Let's do Mitt Romney's healthcare plan. Let's do the right-wing health care plan. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, it is his fault. It is his fault. Beyond that, he said he was going to end the Iraq war. He didn't end the Iraq war or he did for two and a half seconds and immediately put the troops back in. Beyond that, he bailed out Wall Street. It wasn't a bailout of the homeowners. It was a bailout of Wall Street. His cabinet cabinet was appointed by Citigroup. The list goes on and on. He expanded NSA spying. He expanded the drone war. Now, does this mean everything he did was wrong? No. You have to be an idiot to believe that. I think what he did with Iran was great. I think what he did with Cuba was great. I think in his second term when he was freeing some nonviolent drug offenders, I think that was great. But don't whitewash his legacy and act like, oh, what could he have done? No, because then what you're saying is I'm substantively lining up with a moderate Republican as I pretend like I'm the left flank in Congress. If you're going along with his record and whitewashing his record, that's not the left flank. So my point is, Listen, you have to, when you're somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, what you need to understand is Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are never going to like you. They're never going to respect you. They're never going to agree with you. So the way that you work with them is not to hold hands and sing kumbaya and do whatever they want, which is what the donors want. What you do is you make them bend to your will. You have one tool in your toolbox, just one, but it's a powerful one: it's the people. She's already one of the most followed members of Congress, if not the most followed member of Congress. Use the bully pulpit. You have the bully pulpit. Who cares if you piss off Nancy Pelosi? Because then, if she tries to do some retribution and keep you off some committee or some shit, you call that out too. And you show how dirty the system is. You show how corrupt the system is. Use the bully pulpit. Use the people. Leverage the people against these politicians. Nancy Pelosi would think twice about certain policies if every time she inches in a bad direction, in a corporate direction, her office gets phone calls for a week and a half straight of people saying, you're a failure, you're terrible, we're actually going to primary you, we don't like you. But instead, they all, you know, AOC and all of the other lefties, they go go along to get along, and they act like, oh, Obama, he didn't really do anything wrong. There's the limitations of Congress that did him in. And it's the same with Nancy Pelosi. It's the same with Chuck Schumer. So stop and think about that. We have a system where Obama openly works against the left. Openly works against the left. What did he do? You know what he did. He made the phone call to Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete, got them to drop out and endorse Biden at the last minute. At the same time, Elizabeth Warren stayed in and siphoned votes from Bernie, stabbed him in the back for a second time. Obama works against the left. Pelosi works against the left. Schumer works against the left. They openly work against the left. And is the left openly working against them? No. They're calling Pelosi mama bear and saying, gosh golly, Obama did everything he could have done. I wonder why we get nothing done. This is cucktastic. This is nothing personal against her. She's a very lovely person. She really is. And I think she really means well, which is why I'm doing this segment to try to be like, they don't like you. They hate you. Stop covering for them. Stop covering for them. Yes, Obama has a high approval rating. One of the reasons he does is because nobody ever brings up his failures. Nobody on the left ever says, you said you were going to end the wars, and you didn't end the wars. You bailed out Wall Street when you pretended like you were tough on Wall Street. You didn't even fight for a public option. Why did you make the NSA spying bigger and worse, and then hand it off to Trump? You created these terrible institutions and handed them off to a narcissistic madman? Hey, maybe you shouldn't have built out those institutions. Maybe you should have dismantled them. I care about the truth, and this is not true about Obama. But what she's trying to do is say, hey, we're right up next to an election. Trump is the devil, and so we've got to unify, and let me say some kind words about all of them. They will not be returning that favor. That's what I need everybody to understand. Okay. President Obama is uh, campaigning for Biden in in Florida. Let's see what he had to say. Look,
1: some of the rhetoric you're hearing down here in South Florida,
5: it's just made up. It's just mad sense. You're listening to to the Republicans. You think Joe was more communist than the Castro's? Don't fall for that garbage. Don't fall for that okey doke. Joe Biden, <laughs> Joe Biden is not a socialist. He was a senator from Delaware. He was my vice president. I think folks would know if he was a secret socialist by now.
1: What is true is he'll stand up for ordinary people.
2: Yeah, I don't know if he'll stand up for ordinary people. But, listen, factually speaking, Obama's correct. Biden is certainly no socialist. Certainly no socialist. Which, by the way, also stop force-feeding us those terrible articles where they say, oh, he's going to be the most progressive president since FDR. You can't do the whole, like, he's not a socialist, and then turn around and say, he's going to copy our most socialist president. FDR was a social democrat, to be clear. But oftentimes when people like Obama use the term socialist, it's interchangeable with social democrat. They think Bernie's a socialist. He's a social democrat. So really, he's like, oh, Biden's not a social democrat. And then there's all these articles that are like, he's going to be like FDR, social democratic. Drives me crazy. So listen, factually speaking, he's correct. Biden's not a socialist. So you can't get mad at him on the substance of that. You can't do that. But strategically, strategically, I think this is beyond silly for a number of reasons. First of all, when you're campaigning, you should be telling people what you're for. That's what you should be doing. Not, I'm, I'm against this. I'm not this. It's like when Nixon said, I'm not a crook. And everybody went, are you a crook? Corrupt, or imagine campaigning and saying i'm not corrupt what (laughs) so there there's no reason to actually do this but what's interesting is what they choose to run away from this is what they choose to run away from i don't know if you noticed but the guy who's even described himself as a socialist bernie sanders even though again he's a social democrat he calls himself a democratic socialist He got, like, 30% of the vote in the primary. He got, like, the entire young generation. And Obama's out there like, definitely not like that guy who was really popular. Not like that person. Not like that person. Think about how politically dumb this is. He's normally a very good politician. He knows how to win elections, clearly. You're going out there and going to make this argument at a time when we already know. The numbers show it. Joe Biden is crushing among older voters, among suburbanites. He has that demographic locked down. Trump only has white men over 50 with no college degree. So, but really this election comes down to youth turnout, like almost all elections do. How many of the young are going to turn out? They usually don't turn out unless they're inspired to do, something, to do so. But your argument is, oh, he's not a socialist, even though you guys voted for the person who called himself socialist and you loved him. So that's going to depress youth turnout more. Now, thankfully for Obama, there's already been millions of votes cast, so it's not like this is going to impact anybody necessarily, but the strategy of it is infuriating, because now, if slash when Biden wins in just a pure anti-Trump wave election, they're all going to turn around and say, see, we told you, the way you win is to be a serious corporate centrist. That's how you win. You represent the donors, you split the difference, you triangulate, you say, I'm a new Democrat, and you wag your finger at the left and say, silly children, fall in line. That's the lesson they're going to take away. When in reality, the lesson is a ham sandwich could have beaten Donald Trump after four years of Donald Trump. So, listen, it's, it's frustrating. Because you never see this. You never see this with Republicans. Win or lose on the Republican side. Nobody's ever running away from their label, right? Like, imagine, they think Donald Trump is far right. He's not far right. They would never say that. They just wouldn't bring up labels. They just keep telling you what they're for. The only time they bring up labels is to bash the left. And the left, so-called left, the Democrats, take the bait. No, he's not the thing you're accusing him of being. I will keep running away from my own shadow. Instead of saying, you keep accusing us of being socialist. Is the argument you think we want people to have health care? Because we do. We do. That's how you really flip it. But, I mean, again, what do you expect? Obama's basically a moderate Republican, so he's sounding like a moderate Republican. They've learned nothing. They've learned nothing, they act like we never had. Obama governed like George W. Bush didn't happen. And we didn't go far right and start illegal wars and do torture, he governed like things were normal. And now we get Trump and you're gonna have Biden get in there like things are normal and Trump didn't just destroy everything and Bush didn't destroy everything and Obama didn't do the continuation of all the terrible stuff. They perpetually act like it's like 1992. They learn nothing, they adjust to nothing. And they have the same message no matter what, and it's always like the back-to-normalcy stuff. And they're just lucky that this election cycle, that seems appealing because there's so much chaos and mayhem. They're just lucky. If we didn't have COVID, Donald Trump could probably cruise to re-election, because I don't know if you noticed, Joe Biden can barely speak. But here we are. Democrats continuing to remind the young, continuing to remind the base. We don't share your values. We don't agree with you at all. Interesting, isn't it? Okay. All right, let me take a break, guys. When we come back, I got Kanye West.
0: <laughs>
2: I got Kanye West. You're not going to want to miss that. I got actually two clips of him on Rogan. Stay right there.
1: I am back. I am back in this bitch.
2: Okay. Um, Are we going to make fun of Kanye West? The answer is absolutely. Absolutely, we
1: will, y'all. Absolutely, we will.
5: Kanye, Kanye, Kanye.
2: Kanye West went on Joe Rogan's podcast. It was glorious. I enjoyed every minute of it. I soaked it up. (laughs) There are some legendary moments that uh, no doubt will be echoed for decades. So uh, here's one of my favorite parts. This is Joe asking probably the most obvious question you can and should ask anybody who wants to run for president and be the most powerful person in the world, he's basically saying, so what do you want to do? Like, what policies are you for? And Kanye's answer is brilliant.
1: What would you do if you were the leader of the free world? Like, what would be different about the way you would handle things? Like, if that's your plan, like, what is it about that 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 is your calling? Like, why, why would you want to do that? Like, what do you want to do differently if you were the leader of the free world? Well, um,
4: well, there was a couple questions in there. He said, "Why is you know why is that your calling?" The world is like, there, there couldn't be a better time to put a visionary in the in the captain's chair. Um, and that's not to say we, we haven't had visionaries be uh, before. I'm not coming here to down any of the other. Uh, I'm not here to down Trump, down Biden. Uh, I'm just here to express why. Um, Uh, why
5: God has called me to take this position.
2: So God wants Kanye West to be president. I don't know about that. (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) Come on, man. One of the comments was, uh, was really interesting to me. Somebody said, if Kanye was poor everybody would assume that he needs medicine, like he's got issues. But since he's really wealthy, it's just casually viewed as, well, obviously he's a mega genius, and so now he's eccentric, as opposed to, like, troubled or scatterbrained. Um, He's asked specifically what he wants to do as president, and his answer is basically... I'm a visionary, and God is calling me. There's another part there where I I cut it out because he just kind of babbles on for about a minute or two and doesn't really say anything, but he brings up some sort of analogy of like, you know, I'm like the captain of a boat, and there's like 100 people on the ship or 1,000 people on the ship, and you got to control that ship, and that's what i got to do for like the nation. Like, okay, you're just describing like what a president's role is. The question was about what are you going to do – there's parts where Joe asks questions that are like – it's almost like he's giving him the answer in the question. Joe's like, okay, so here's a big problem, student loan debt. We got over a trillion dollars in student loan debt. That really holds people back. You know, They're basically like indentured servants to a corrupt, broken system, and they've got to pay it off. Student loan debt's a huge problem. What do you want to do about it? Almost like a, like a softball down the center of the plate.
0: <laughs>
2: and Kanye's like, uh, uh, couldn't even swing. Because the answer is like, yeah, abolish it. Are you kidding me? We got all the money in the world to be an imperialistic superpower and bomb eight different countries and have like 900 military bases everywhere and bail out Wall Street to the tune of trillions of dollars. But we can't wipe out a trillion dollars in student loan debt. Of course we can. We've chosen not to. As president, I will choose to do it. I will do everything in my power to eliminate student loan debt. There's other developed countries that have free college. There's no student loan debt. There's none of it. We could do that. Why can't we do that? Of course we could do that. He gave you the answer in the question. Student loan debt's a big problem. Should we perhaps get
0: rid of it? <laughs> That's what happens. That's what happens.
2: Now, okay, I've got to show you one more because we get to foreign policy, and this is incredible. Let me find the foreign policy one.
1: China takes over Taiwan? What if they invade Taiwan? What if uh, something happens with Syria? What if something happens with uh, Iran? What if something happens with Russia? And you have to make decisions about military action. Have you thought about this? Uh, yes, I would. What if China takes over? T-
2: incredible. Incredible. By the way, there's one point where there's an awkward pause. I forget what the, what the topic was when this happened. But there was an awkward pause that was extended. And then when Kanye finally says something, he says, I just said a prayer right there. And Joe's like, So why? So why'd you do that? <laughs> oh, it was so awkward to watch, man. It was so awkward to watch. Listen, there's no doubt about it. He's a musical genius. In fact, my favorite part of the podcast is when he's talking to Joe and then like he says something that kind of rhymes and then Kanye like literally just composes lyrics and like tries to put it to a beat in real time. And I was like, "Oh shit, that's, that's where the musical genius comes from. It just it's like it just comes to him. Like the music just just comes through him almost where it's just he's in tune with whatever it is. That's that creative aspect of his brain." Well, listen, man, I got I to gotta keep it real. Dune ain't ready to be lead, leader of the free world. <laughs> Dune ain't ready to, you know, make these decisions that Joe just brought up right here. Like, you got foreign policy, you got, you know, what are you going to do if there's some sort of genocide? What are you going to do if China invades Taiwan? What are you going to do in, in the case of Syria? Like, and there's not, it's like there are also simple ways to answer this question that make sense, but he doesn't even do that. Like, he does eventually say something along the lines of, oh, I'll have the best minds around me, and then what they tell me to do, I'll make the most sound decision with it, but right now I'm just a civilian, so I don't have all the information they have, so I can't answer that question. Um, But then he goes on to say something like, but just so you know, once I'm given all the information by the experts, I never make the wrong decision. That's my talent. It's always making the correct decision. So it's almost like he was close to saying something somewhat rational, and then he just drove it off a cliff. (laughs) Like, okay, yeah, I'll have experts, and they'll give me advice, and I'll listen to it. But just so you understand, it is against the laws of nature for me to ever make a mistake. I've never made a mistake. Oh, man, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what he's doing. No, I don't think he's strategizing and trying to be a spoiler to help Trump or whatever. I really don't think that. But he, when the votes are counted and he gets, like, less than 1%, like, that's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. You've actually, he's actually doing – he didn't even get on the ballot in all these places, and so now he's just doing a write-me-in campaign. I mean, what are you going to do when you get less than 1%? What are you going to say? How do you spin that as a positive? How do you make that, you know, oh, this is a learning experience for the next time I run or whatever? It's just, it seems like he has delusions of grandeur and everybody's feeding into it. Like, nobody around him has ever been like, that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. You got to have people who can tell you that, man. Like, you know, I think most people have somebody in their life who can just be like, listen, I know that this is what you're thinking at the moment. You're a jackass. Like, you need that. That's important. Because sometimes we're jackasses. It's everybody. Sometimes, you know, we just make some terrible decisions. You need somebody to be like, sort of never do that again and do the exact opposite, maybe. And he just, it seems like he doesn't have anybody who's ever been like, ha ha, stop it. Stop it. You know, and to me, the thing that's crazy is it really is coasting off of narcissism but now he's not that much different from other people who want to be president. By the way, it's just that it's so obvious that the policy chops aren't there that it's like the next level. It, it just it's so transparent in how narcissistic it is because there's not even he doesn't even have the ability to fake the policy chops well. Whereas usually politicians there's enough of a base of knowledge to be able to fake the policy chops, but he's like he doesn't even have that, and so he's just caught speeding on everything. Because Joe is treating it seriously. Joe's like, okay, you want to be president? He, in the podcast, he asked about universal health care. He asked about student loan debt. He asked about foreign policy, like you just saw. He's taking it seriously. And when Kanye, basically, he always diverts back to, I'm a genius, and God wants me to do this. Forgive us if we don't all say, like, well, I must now defer to you and I'll go run to the polls to vote for you because that's ridiculous. Anyway, listen, he's a musical genius, but in all seriousness, I really do hope he gets help because I don't think, I think he's a little off, something's a little off. And somebody can make the argument that, hey, maybe that's what leads to the musical genius. At the very least, you should split the difference. At the very least, get him medicated enough to come down to earth, but also still have that musical intuition. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. He says at one point when he was on medicine, because he was prescribed, they called him, I think, bipolar. He was put on medicine, and he said, it just took away, like, all of my life energy, something to that effect. And it's not, like, the thing that made me, me, me wasn't there anymore. Okay, so he's never going to take the full dose of whatever it is. For the love of God, take a half dose. <laughs> just come back to life a little bit, come down to earth a little bit, and then you could still make amazing music and be a businessman and do whatever the hell you want to do. But, I mean, this running for president thing. I just can't even wrap my mind around it. Like, what are, what is this, man? What is this? I've never seen anything like this. And it's almost like the culmination... Crystal Ball on Rising made a great point. She was like, Trump is the culmination of capitalism and celebrity culture. So in some ways, he's the most American thing to ever happen. And it's like, I feel like Kanye is like, yes, that's what Trump is, but I'm actually one level up from that. So you think he's the culmination of capitalism and celebrity culture? What if that, I'm the real culmination of capitalism and celebrity culture? As vapid and vacuous and ridiculous as Trump is, I'm probably more vapid and vacuous and ridiculous. And I'm gonna try to get the same thing done that he got done, I wanna become president. I mean, that's what it, it strikes me as. And one of the things about him that got under my skin, I think more than anything else, is um, he's got this obsession with what he views as great men, with billionaires. And he brings them up all the time in the podcast, whether it's you know Disney or Elon Musk or you know fill in the blank, Tesla, whoever. He goes back through history, Einstein, and he picks these men. Most of the time they're industrialists and they're billionaires. And he views them as like, well, these are the people who kind of push the human condition along. And he basically seems to think everything already is a meritocracy and these people... They're just the cream that rose to the top of the meritocracy. And so they're the smartest, they're the brightest. And he views himself as, I'm a genius, I'm the smartest, I'm the brightest too, so I'm destined for this position to lead everybody and lead everything, even though he's got no real policy ideas. And my issue with that way of thinking is, honestly, I think it's incredibly naive. This idea that the reason why billionaires are billionaires, they just sort of rose to the top of what is already a meritocracy, when the fact of the matter is, you know this, I know this, anybody who's really you know, thought about this stuff, and knows the history knows this, a lot of the people who become billionaires, they're honestly the most greedy and the most shameless. And many of them, you know, a lot of people who are uber wealthy were just born into that wealth. So putting them on a pedestal, no, it's like the way to really view it rationally and logically is like, everybody's a person, you judge people on their individual characteristics and abilities, and But instead of doing that, he just sees the end product of, like, well, this person's got a lot of money, so this person must be a mega genius. So he sort of feeds into this idea that it's almost like society is already a meritocracy and the people who've made it to the top of this hierarchy are there for legitimate reasons. When the fact of the matter is there's a lot of Paris Hiltons out there. And not to pick on Paris Hilton, but there's a lot of Paris Hiltons. There's a lot of, you know, brutal, greedy, selfish narcissistic industrialists there are a lot of lucky idiots who made it far in life and there's a lot of hard-working decent people who never make more than minimum wage in their entire life and those are the people who it makes more sense in my mind to glorify not these like assholes who think they're mega geniuses and made it to the top of the meritocracy when in reality they were lucky they were born into wealth or they were just the most greedy and and snuffed out the competition by any means necessary, no matter how unethical their actions were. So yeah, he's got this like great man theory that annoys me and gets under my skin because I think it's a childish view of the world. Um, but clearly it's one of the things that drives him this idea of like, well, wealthy, famous people, billionaires, they're worthy. And I'm one of them. So now I'm destined for that top spot because of my celebrity because of my wealth. And, um, It's really deeply unserious, but at the same time, like I said, I think he he needs help, so maybe I'm being a little too harsh. Okay. All right. Now we're going to go to MSNBC. MSNBC is uh, a little bit shocked by what joe biden is doing in the final days leading up to the election check it out
5: Michael, well, can we talk strategy for a second? Um, you've been a part of
4: campaigns. At this point, we're nine days out. Joe Biden doesn't have anything on the schedule today. So far, we don't know anything about Monday. We know he's back um, in Georgia on Tuesday. Are they trying to just run out the clock and do no harm by not having those events out there, or what? what? Help, me, help me understand what's going on.
5: Yeah, you know, i got to be honest with you. I don't understand that. I mean, I worked for a Republican nominee, uh, now Senator Mitt Romney, and I can assure you uh, when we were nine days out, we were going to multiple – I mean, God, Kenneth, I was so exhausted. Multiple city of the day.
2: So they're, uh, they're surprised. They can't figure it out. They're like, well, I don't get it. Why isn't Biden campaigning? Why isn't he going to these swing states? Why isn't he holding, you know, virtual events or whatever it may be? Here's the answer. He's Joe Biden. I don't know if you noticed, he's not actually firing on all cylinders, to put it kindly. So it's funny to me because I think the staff is actually getting it right. If I was running Joe Biden's campaign, of course I would hide him. Of course I would hide him. He's been up the entire time and growing his lead when he's hiding. So why would you not continue to do the thing that works? you have all the evidence in the world that hiding him helps. So hide him and it'll help. And he's got that extra excuse of, oh, it's a pandemic. So now there's even a reason to be like, this is rational and this is responsible. Whereas look at what the Trump people are doing, that's irresponsible. I mean, listen, it, it honestly worked out all the stars aligned Joe Biden in this election. In a way, perhaps it hasn't for anybody ever. This is like the easiest campaign that anybody has ever run, ever. And it's working. But yes, I find this amazing. The MSNBC host, Shermichael, said, you know, was kind of feeding into it as well, like, I don't get it. Yes, you do. You all get it. Everybody gets it. You all get it. Stop and think about it for just a little bit. Okay, he's Joe Biden. He's the daft machine, to put it kindly. Every time he hides, he goes up in the polls. The problem, arguably, with Hillary last time is the same thing. The more people saw her, the more they disliked her. But they didn't ever hide her. They just kept putting her out there in front of people, and then her numbers went down and down and down. Biden's not, you know, he's a lot more likable than Hillary. All the numbers show that. But, like, yeah, if you're up there and you don't have to do anything, then, yes, do less, and you'll continue to be up there. So I don't, I find it funny because people can't break free from that mindset of, like, the traditional playbook for politics. I'm here to tell you there is no playbook. There is no formula. You know what I mean? It's like, honestly, you know what it's like? It's like love. It's like love. You never know. Nobody knows, like, you know, when they're going to fall in love, who they're going to fall in love with, how it's going to come about. You can't, like, write down steps and be like, well, first this and then this. And then this checkpoint, and then that checkpoint, and you go down the list. That's not how it works. It is what it is, basically. There's no breaking it down. Same thing with this, man. Same thing with politics. Sometimes there's no rhyme. There's no reason. Things just happen, and people react to it in interesting ways. It's almost like, remember with the Access Hollywood tape where Trump with the grab by the pussy thing, and everybody in mainstream media was like, that's it. It's over. It's done. Forget it. It's done. Totally done and then Trump went to the next debate and brought all of Bill Clinton's accusers and was like, huh, you're getting mad at me for words? This guy did actions. All of his accusers are right there. Get mad at him. And then couple that with Trump going to the Rust Belt in the lead-up to the election and hammering home on jobs and saying Hillary's going to outsource your job, I'm going to protect your job. He won. He overcame the thing that people said he can't overcome it. If at any point in this unfolding of events you stopped and analyzed it by the political playbook and textbook, Everybody would have said, oh, this is over. It's done. There's no coming back from this. That's what the playbook says. That's what the textbook says. Guess what? Ain't no textbook, bitch. The people who wrote the textbook made it all up. It's all made up. Here's how I think you should strategize. You should do this first and then the second. (laughs) Really? And what have you done? What have you won? You haven't done anything. You haven't won anything. The people who wrote the textbook are overpaid staffers in D.C., who've never gotten anything right in their entire lives, and you're going to listen to them? They don't know what they're doing. How do you actually determine what to do? Like I said, there's no textbook. There's no playbook. What you do is, it's all theory and then empirically testing. That's all it is. Trial and error. That's all it is. Hey, what is popular that we already know is popular? Okay, here's the popular policies. Go talk about that a lot. (laughs) And just in in the process of talking about those things, be likable. And that's hard because sometimes it's an X factor human thing. You don't know who you're going to find likable, and who you're not going to find likable. To, you know, it's, it's sometimes there's no, again, there's no quantifying it. It just is what it is. But like, yeah, talk about the popular stuff, and then we'll see what happens. And then if you go up when you say these things, say more of that. If You go down, don't say that, right? And so in the case of Biden, he's just lucky that I don't have to do anything because Trump is so bad and COVID's so terrible that I'll just just gonna go hang out, sip a mojito. Watch reruns of the Golden Girls in my basement. And it's like, oh, look at that. Gained two points today. (laughs) That's what it is. So anyway, there is no political playbook. And so when people like on MSNBC and political analysts are, well, gosh, I don't understand. Why isn't the guy with the melting brain, why isn't the human zombie who's running for president talking for eight hours a day? Really? Really? You all know the answer. Just think about it.
1: All right,
0: next.
2: This next story is hilarious to me for a number of reasons. This is from Religion News. They say the following. In an exclusive interview with Religion News Service, President Trump said in a written statement that he no longer identifies as a Presbyterian and now sees himself as a non-denominational Christian. Quote, though I was confirmed at a Presbyterian church as a child, I now consider myself to be a non-denominational Christian. Trump, who has repeatedly identified as a Presbyterian in the past, said in a written response to RNS, saying that his parents, quote, taught me the importance of faith and prayer from a young age. Trump went on to say that Melania and I have gotten to visit some amazing churches and meet with great faith leaders from around the world. During the unprecedented COVID-19 outbreak, I tuned into several virtual church services and know that millions of Americans did the same. The revelation about Trump's religious identity appeared in an interview that was conducted in writing and covered a variety of faith topics ranging from the president's own spiritual life to his plans for the White House office tasked with engaging faith groups. So there's a few things to say about this. One part about it I actually sort of respect. The other part about it I, I despise with every fiber of my being, and it's hilarious how much I don't respect it. Okay. The part I respect is this is Trump going back to the same well of his base. So he sees the numbers, he knows he's down, he's like, I gotta make up for this somehow. And everything he's trying to appeal to the groups that are not typically his base is not working. So the thought process is, well then I just gotta turn out more of my base. Who's his base? Evangelical Christians. And so this is classic Republican politics, never abandon your base ever under any circumstances. If anything super serve your base and get that's how you get them to support you. Whereas the Democrats do the opposite. They always run away from their base at 1,000 miles an hour. They run to moderate Republicans. Because corporate Democrats basically are moderate Republicans. So Democrats run away from their base. Republicans run towards their base. So that's the part I I, I respect, is that, like, okay, they're super-serving their base. Like, wouldn't it be nice to have politicians who don't remind you every three seconds that they despise you? I think that'd be lovely. Because us on the left, we never get that. They let us know all the time. We don't agree with you at all. Okay. The part I... I don't respect it all, and it's hilarious what he's doing here is this is like the most pandering BS I've ever seen in my life. As Adam Johnson said on Twitter, I'm not sure this has ever happened in the history of American politics, that somebody was pandering so hard that they converted their religion in the middle of the campaign just to get votes. Because that's what he's doing. He's like, oh, I'm doing bad. i got to turn more people out. I got it. Let me... Let me uh, become a non-denominational Christian as opposed to a Presbyterian, and maybe that'll give me another two- or three-point bump with evangelicals that'll help me maybe win. So this is, it's so funny because Trump likes to portray himself as like,
1: who, me? No,
2: I'm not even a politician, bro. I'm a non-politician. I don't know what you're talking about. I tell it like it is. I'm a straight shooter. That's what I do. I I don't pander like these career politicians over here. And then this is the most pandering stuff I've ever seen. This is as ridiculous a pander as ever. Did Trump actually have some sort of religious conversion one day sitting in the Oval Office? Like, you know, I thought Presbyterianism was true, but now I think being a non-denominational Christian is true. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about any of that shit. It's all like, look at the polls. Oh, my God, what's happening? Got to find a way to make up for this. What if I just pander on the next level? and say, "Oh yes, now I'm one of you guys. Please, I don't want to lose this election." <laughs> it's like it's like the stuff he's been doing with suburban women where he goes out there he's like, "Suburban women, I'm your candidate. I will protect you. I will stop black people from coming into your suburbs. I mean, I mean uh, low income housing from coming into your suburbs. I will protect the American dream. Love me, suburban women." And let me tell you something. "Nobody hates Donald Trump more than suburban women. <laughs> they despise him." Um, so, but this is, this, this is just a perfect, like, this is a sign as of what's about to happen in the upcoming election. It really is. Because, you know, Trump went from, in 2016, genuinely not sounding like a traditional Republican. Because traditional Republicans run on stuff like,
1: the deficit, oh, deficit, and oh, we got to reform
2: Social Security and Medicare, which means cut. Trump went out there and said, I'm not, I'm not going to cut Social Security Medicare. I'm not going to do that at all. I'm going to protect them. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fight the outsourcing bills that ship all your jobs overseas. I'm going to protect your job. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to end these wars. So he sounded populist, and it was interesting. But ultimately, he was a fake populist. He governed as an establishment Republican. Well, now he's got the brain worms from Washington, D.C. in the swamp, and people like Larry Kudlow and Republican consultants, and he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know whether he's coming or going. He doesn't have any political instincts anymore. They've been dulled repeatedly, also by steady diet of Fox nonsense. And so now this is where he's at. This is what he's reduced to. Okay, I got to change. I got. What if, what if I change my religion? If I change my religion, well, then I get more votes. I'll do that. I'll change my religion. Pandering motherfucker. You pandering motherfucker, you. So anyway, there it is. There it is. Donald Trump becoming the ultimate pandering politician on a level that I don't know if I've ever seen this before ever. Nobody has pandered this hard ever, and he's still probably going to lose. Okay, next. There's a story about Bernie Sanders that came out a few days ago and it's been driving me crazy. The story is, oh, Bernie Sanders is hoping to become labor secretary under Joe Biden. This was reported in Politico. The fact that he's, quote, hoping for it, I nearly broke something when I read that. Hey, Bernie, you ran in the Democratic primary and got 30%. You won the first three states effectively. You had tremendous leverage. You know, you could have said to Joe, here's what I want in return for dropping out and endorsing you. You could have demanded to be labor secretary. You could have demanded it. You want me to drop out and and campaign for you all around this country? Great. Here are my demands. One of them is that I'm labor secretary. Instead, he does everything Joe Biden wants and then has to leak to the media. I'm hoping he'll pick me for this thing. He's never going to pick me for. Why would he pick you? Why would he pick you? You've been campaigning all across the country for him. You do everything he wants anyway. So he's going to let you, he's going to use your popularity and then stab you in the back. Of course he's going to do that because he doesn't agree with you. He's a corporatist. So it's embarrassing. It's incredibly naive. It's incredibly naive. It's impossible to wrap your mind around how pathetic this is, how weak this is. Listen, nobody loved Bernie more than me. But it's very clear that he just doesn't know what the hell he's doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. I think he means well. He doesn't have any idea what he's doing. So anyway, now you get the cackling hyenas over on Fox Business Network. They're going to report on this story about Bernie as Labor Secretary. Let's see their view on it.
5: Thank you. Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders, the socialist, he wants to be Labor Secretary if Joe Biden gets elected. I don't really want to hear any more about this, Ashley, but you're going to tell me anyway. (laughs) Yes, I am. Why not? Uh, People familiar with conversations claim Sanders has been making a push for the top job of the Labor Department, reaching out to allies on Biden's transition team, counting the need for progressive voices in a new administration. It's right up your alley, Stu. Sanders (laughs) is neither denying nor confirming the reports, but he has thrown his support behind him. Uh, Joe Biden campaigning for him in Michigan and in uh, New Hampshire, and Biden is already being pushed, as we know, to appoint progressives to senior roles in his administration. Sanders' bid could also find support from union officials. No big surprise there, um, because you know he, he he has some influence over over those unions, who also have some influence over Biden's pick for the Labor Department. Sanders has long touted making it easier, of course, for workers to organize. He wants to raise the minimum wage. He's also a big fan of socialized medicine. But others say there's zero chance of Bernie Sanders running the Labor Department with one close ally saying he's a, quote, lone ranger to the fault. Just so long as you don't tell me that Senator Elizabeth Warren is in line for the Treasury Secretary. Just stay <laughs> away from that there, Ashley. That's be cool. I won't do that. <laughs> Whatever <Yeah>. you
0: say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Fuck the workers, good sir. Yes, fuck the workers. Where's my monocle?
2: I mean, they literally start the clip by laughing at the idea of Bernie as labor secretary. And you know what? You know what the bitter pill to swallow is? These guys and how pompous they are and arrogant they are and how anti-worker they are. Joe Biden agrees with them. He watches this. They're laughing at Bernie as labor secretary. So is Joe. Joe's laughing at it too.
0: <laughs> oh, he said, He wants to have more unionization and a $15 minimum wage and socialized medicine. (laughs) Ridiculous.
2: (laughs) They even say at the end there, oh, according to inside sources, there's zero chance of this. He's a lone ranger to a fault. Think about that. Hold on. Think about that. He's a lone ranger to a fault. Is he a lone ranger when he's doing rallies for Joe more than Joe is doing rallies for Joe? Is that a lone ranger? Is that, a lo- is that what that is? No. That's a guy doing everything he can to help get Joe elected. But he's going to get nothing in return. Nothing. Nothing. Elizabeth Warren did everything she could to stab Bernie in the back and help Joe Biden. When she stayed in at the same time Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar dropped out and they consolidated the centrist vote behind Biden and Warren stayed in. Stab Bernie in the back. Everything she said to undercut Bernie, undermine Bernie, basically accusing him of being a sexist. She did everything she could to help the centrists. And she ain't going to get anything for it. She ain't getting get nothing. She's not going to be in the administration. They're floating her as Treasury Secretary. Hilarious. Progressive groups are pushing for her as Treasury Secretary.
1: Hilarious.
2: She already said, I, I will do anything to get in this administration. And they laughed at her said, hmm, we don't like you. So congrats to Bernie and Elizabeth Warren for being so bad at politics that Elizabeth Warren sold everything she ever supposedly believed in off. And she's a joke. And Bernie is just a naive child. I'll do all these rallies for you, but I didn't ask for anything up front. I didn't demand anything up front. So then I'll come hoping afterwards. You don't get anything. You don't get anything. (laughs) Delusional at best. But here you go. This is the... uh, The pompous, arrogant Fox News
0: millionaires. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) Fuck the workers, yes! Oh, fuck the workers. We agree with Joe Biden on this one, good sir. Yes, we do.
2: All right, next. This video that you're about to see from MSNBC is amazing. It's honestly one of my favorites, maybe of all time. But this is what happens when you talk to young voters about the election. This should be a wake-up call for the Democratic Party. Of course it won't be. But let's see what particularly young black women in this instance uh, think about their choices in 2020.
4: undecided. I'd write your name in at this point. Usually by now I would have voted already, but I I'm just not comfortable with either one of them right now. What are you looking for? What do you need to hear? Let's start at the crime bill and the fact that he has not not only not apologized, not only oh, not right. sure. he has not he has not only not rectified every time he reverts back to well, it was some the black caucus members in the, in the church, where they were with it, too. Okay, you fooled them as well. You know, you never said I'm sorry. You know, it's like I didn't do it. I want to hear an ironclad plan. I don't want to hear if this or if that or after the election. Does the presence of Kamala Harris on the Democratic ticket sway you at all? No. Not at all. I don't know who said she had our vote. She does not. We were supposed to grab onto Kamala with the black girl magic, but that didn't happen because he, she didn't right or wrong. Like, I hold officials accountable. I don't care what color you are. And I think that too often we automatically think that because someone looks like you that they're going to have your best interests at heart, and that's, that's just not simply true.
2: They're not getting fooled. You're not going to get anything by them. It's not going to happen. Inject that video straight in my veins. Inject that video straight in my veins. That's what politics is at its best right there. So let's go through some of what they say here. Um, I'm undecided, even though it's Trump and Biden and all you hear and all stuff. Trump is the worst. Oh my God, he's so bad. He's so bad. You got to do the lesser evil vote. They say, I'm undecided. I'd write your name in before I'd vote for one of these clowns. Then they're asked, hey, what are you looking for? Like, what do you need to hear? Very first thing that's brought up, what is it? Joe Biden and the crime bill. The crime bill, which helped lead to our mass incarceration crisis, locking up nonviolent offenders and ruining their lives. Ruining their lives. The same time Hunter's getting kid glove treatments and rehab for his drug problem, Joe wanted to lock up poor black kids for it for the same issue. They have the sentencing disparity. Crack cocaine, you get a lot more time than powder cocaine because black people use the crack cocaine. So Mr. You know, tough on crime, law and order Joe Biden, turns out that's coming back to bite him in the ass here. Now, by the way, Biden's up in the polls massively. So he's very likely to win the election. But this is what you need to understand. If he wins, it's because he chipped away at old people and got the suburbs to support him. There's a report that came out today about how people making over 100 grand a year they're overwhelmingly giving to Joe Biden, and not Trump. So in other words, young people are like, "Wow, this system is ridiculous. This system is a sham. And I see through it. I think it's bullshit. So your options are, Donald Trump a guy who continued all the wars, a guy who just cut taxes for the wealthy, deregulated to the point where millions of people are going to have dirty drinking water because he got rid of the regulations on coal plants. I mean, I could go on and on here. He's done a million things that are absolutely abysmal. It's that guy, the mass-incarcerating war criminal, Joe Biden, the guy who voted for the Iraq War, which was an illegal and offensive war that killed minimum 200,000 Iraqi civilians. Those are our choices. And I like, one of them says... I don't want to, like, I want to hear ironclad plants on how to get out of this pandemic, on how to fix the economy. I want to, it's policy. It's about policy to me. And then, of course, at the end, cherry on top, this says it, it all for the younger generation, who's hyper-educated on politics, we're the most educated on politics. They basically say, listen, identity politics is BS. I don't think Kamala's going to support me and and be for the policies I'm for just because she's a black woman? That's ridiculous. That's like me. Like what? Do I think Donald Trump is going to represent me because he's a white guy and I'm a white guy? Absurd. I disagree with him on almost everything. This is the point they're making. Oh, because she's a black woman, I'm supposed to just shut my brain off and say, well, she somewhat looks like me, so therefore she's going to represent me. Except Kamala Harris is the person who laughed at the idea of legalizing marijuana in 2014. She laughed at it. When her Republican opponent was like, I want to legalize marijuana, she was laughing when she was asked a question about that. She's for civil asset forfeiture, which is legalized robbery by police officers, shaking down regular people. She let Steve Mnuchin off the hook of One West Bank. When Steve Mnuchin, who's now the Treasury Secretary, by the way, and he was a Goldman Sachs lackey criminal, when Steve Mnuchin, 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 Mnuchin was illegally foreclosing on grandmothers and grandfathers in California and kicking them out of their homes during the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. Cuddle's own office said prosecute him, and she didn't do it. Why? She took donations from Steve Mnuchin. Turns out young people are very educated on politics, and you're not pulling this trash on young people. So, And you can shame people all you want, and I mean this sincerely, even for people who you know, might be in my audience or might be in other audiences or whatever, that you could shame and, well, obviously, Joe Biden is better. Somebody can totally concede on that point, that he is a lesser evil, but still have an issue with doing a lesser evil vote. Because, again, some people are going to say, that I can't look past the crime bill, mass incarceration, ruining an entire generation of people who could have had bright futures, but you ruined their lives. I can't look past that. I can't look past that. I can't look past the Iraq war vote. There are gonna be people who say that, and you could berate them and call them bad people all day, but if somebody's real objection is, I'm thinking about the 200,000 dead Iraqi civilians that were killed in part because of this guy's vote, I don't think your shame really matters much. I think that shame actually should be flipped right back on you for not recognizing that that's a totally legitimate objection. So listen, this is what happens. Now again, I wanna reiterate here, Biden is up huge in the polls. It's very likely he's going to win the election. Um, but my point is, it's not because of the younger generation. Because there are still many people in the younger generation who you're not, you're not going to get them with BS arguments. This is just like the, the, um, the article that came out in 2016. They went to a Milwaukee barbershop, the New York Times did, and spoke to them about the election. And they, a lot of them just didn't vote. They were like, we voted for Obama. thought things were going to change for the better, and they didn't. So now you want me to vote for Hillary. I'm not going to vote for her. Do something for me. Tangible. I want something tangible. I want Medicare for all. We all need health care. We're the only developed country that doesn't have health care for everybody. If we do Medicare for all, everybody gets health care, and we save $5 trillion over a decade. I want that. Give me that. Give me free college. Eliminate student loan debt. We pay taxes. Why shouldn't our taxes go towards something for us? Instead of now, they go to Wall Street bailouts, and they go to endless wars. How about stop the Wall Street bailout, stop the endless wars, take that money, and give it to the people? How about a universal basic income check, another stimulus check in our COVID depression? How about that? This is what these voters are saying. I don't, want, I don't want to hear any nonsense. I don't want you to shove identity politics down my throat. I don't want you to hit me with platitudes and cliches. I want substance. And this is what the young generation is demanding. Now, again, Biden's very likely to win, but don't get it twisted. The only reason he will, if he does, is because he chipped away at the suburbs, he chipped away at old voters, and it was purely an anti-Trump swing election to the point where you could run a rusty bucket with vomit in it against Trump, and the rusty bucket with vomit in it would probably win over 300 electoral votes. So they're going to take all the wrong lessons from it and think, corporatism is awesome, and isn't it great when we stand for nothing and spew platitudes? That's going to be what they take away from it, but just remember... These people are the future. These young black women, the entire young generation, we're the future. I don't know if I could say we anymore because I'm 32. I don't think they're as old as I am, but younger people are the future of politics. So you can keep tricking us or try to trick us for as long as you want. At some point, it's going to backfire, and we're already seeing the cracks in the foundation. Okay. Next, we're going to go to Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton did an interview with Axios, and she said something that's making headlines. I want to share it with you here. Clinton says most Republicans want to see Trump gone, but can't say it publicly. Huh. Huh. Now, so there are a couple, you know, options here. There's a couple scenarios here. Um, one of them is that she knows this because of things that were said to her off the record, and she's hinting at it, or the other thing is it could just be a guess of hers, an opinion of hers. Um, and there's actually multiple ways to interpret what she's saying here, too. So, when she says Republicans, does she mean Republican leadership, like Republican politicians, or does she mean your average and Jane Republican voter? Because, and here's the point of discussing this, On one of those, she's kind of correct. And on the other one, she's dead wrong. So if she's talking about Republican politicians and Republican leadership, it's not that they want Trump gone. It's that they think it's inevitable and it's going to happen. There is a little bit of a difference there. It's not like, oh, my God, we definitely want him gone. It's they're resigned to the fact that he's going to be gone because they don't see any way he wins. So that, I think, is true. I think McConnell has totally given up on Trump. I think his actions on the stimulus are evidence of that. Think about it. Why is McConnell prioritizing getting Amy Coney Barrett on the court when the American people are really suffering? He doesn't care about the American people. That's obvious. But a stimulus has the potential to maybe help Trump in the polls. He's like, forget about that. Let me just get Amy Coney Barrett on the court. I'm going to prioritize that. That's my legacy is getting the right-wing lockdown on the court. But the other you know, Republican politicians, listen, they always fall in line and do what Trump wants, but they are sick of having to apologize for him, having to, you know, explain away a lot of the stuff he says. Trump is, has no filter, he's uncontrollable, he bounces off the walls, and he says crazy things, and to the point where he bullies people on Twitter and whatnot. You and I look at that and we laugh, but people who have to defend him on a daily basis, they're like, oh my God, here I go again. And uh, they don't like that. They don't like that. They don't like him personally. They would rather have somebody like Mitt Romney who does the veneer and the facade and the show of being a serious person as he ruthlessly serves corporations. With Trump, he ruthlessly serves corporations, but he has no filter and he's a pain in the ass and he's annoying and it's hard to explain away all the stuff that's, you know, scandalous. So I think she's kind of right for Republican leadership. They're comfortable with a Biden presidency also because Biden's a moderate Republican and they know that they could probably get stuff done with him too, like cutting social security, and Medicare. So I think they're comfortable with it. Um, but here's where she's wrong. If she says most Republicans and she means Republican voters, no, nobody's ever been more wrong ever. Cause as much as Republican leadership is indifferent to Trump and they're annoyed by Trump and they think it's inevitable. He loses the actual voters they've never loved a president more than they love Trump. Trump has that solid 30 or 35 percent base that will never go anywhere ever. He's right. He could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and get away with it and, in fact, get more support from these people because they come up with theories about how the guy deserved it and Trump was just being macho and standing up and self-defense and whatever. And that's, that's the other thing that I think Democrats need to grapple with is that What happens to all that energy? What happens to that 30 to 35% base if slash when Trump loses? What happens? Does that just go away? Does it just go away? I don't know. I don't know. I, I honestly don't know where all that energy goes. I don't know where all of it goes. But here's what's for sure. They love him more than Republicans have ever loved any president ever. And I even include Reagan in that. I think Trump's diehards are more diehard than Reagan's diehards were because Reagan was more beloved in the elite social circles in D.C. He had, you know, Republican voters loved him, too, but nobody loves their guy as much as Trump people love his guy. Now, again, that's an ever-shrinking number, so now it's down to 30 or 35% of the country, but that's a solid chunk, man. That's a solid chunk. And um, it will be, I mean, listen, I think the Democratic Party has been at civil war for over four years now, and um, it is the corporatist versus the left the Democrats have their problems, of course. But there will be a civil war just as bad, if not worse. Just as bad, if not worse, in the Republican Party. Because it's going to be Trumpists versus the establishment types. And it's going to get messy. Because the only thing, the thing that pisses off Trump more than anything is a personal slight. And if he loses and all the other Republicans in D.C. immediately abandon him, and they will because he lost, then it's like, okay, you have this rabid base of people who never abandoned Trump, and now Trump's calling out the Republican leadership, and so you have a, a fracture in the Republican Party that's really difficult for them to find a path forward until Trump is like really gone out of the picture. So, again, they agree on policy, but even for just the aesthetic reasons, they would be at each other's throats, and that's going to be a crazy thing to watch. So, anyway, interesting comment here from Hillary Clinton. She's kind of right about Republican politicians, but definitely wrong about the voters. Quick break, y'all. When we come back, I got a lot more for you. Um, We're going to talk about what actually happens if Trump loses the election, and then we'll get into Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. Stay right there.
5: We are back, bitch.
1: All right, let's keep it moving.
2: We got President Trump and what his plans may be if he loses the election. Happens if Donald Trump loses the election? Now, I know um, we can get into the chaos and the mayhem that might unfold on the actual day. And, you know, if there's any prayer of stealing it, he'll talk about uh, fraudulent mail in ballots or whatever. He's already set the table for that a million times. But I'm not, I'm not talking about that. We already know there's going to be chaos, we already know there's going to be mayhem. We don't know the details of it, the specifics of it, how everything's going to unfold yet. But I'm talking about what happens if he loses, and when he's eventually actually out of office, what does he do next? Well, we may have gotten a hint on that front. Scoop, Jared Kushner has been talking up the idea of starting a Trump-themed news outlet or some other media company, possibly as soon as after the election. Five Republicans familiar with the discussions, told Politics Insider. That's, uh, that's Business Insider. That's the, the website that we're talking about here. Five Republicans familiar with the discussions. So what that tells me is it's real. It's real. Now, there was speculation in 2016 that if Trump loses, that's what they're going to do. They're going to start a right-wing media outlet called Trump TV. Now, even before the election, Jared Kushner is kind of setting the table and trying to figure out what direction they would go in if Trump loses, which there's a number of, there's a number of things hidden in this story, the subtext of this, which again, make it interesting. One thing is, I think that his inner circle does kind of realize, just like like the Republican politicians realize that he's sort of he's sort of in serious trouble and he's probably going to lose. And so now they're making these contingency plans and they're actively thinking about what to do next. There's even been Republican politicians who, who talk about it openly in like rallies and interviews of like a, the post-Trump Republican Party. And so the fact that even Jared Kushner knows, that means Ivanka knows, that means you know Trump probably secretly behind closed doors. is are like, God damn it. God damn it. So I think they might know. Um, but the, the dynamic of this would be fascinating because so if you start Trump TV and you're doing it right after you lose to Joe Biden in an election, you know, as a general rule, after somebody loses. They really do become a pariah in many ways, like when Mitt Romney lost and then he went on TV and basically said, like, well, you know, Obama's people just want the free stuff. And even the Republican Party was like, you're disgusting. Like, go away for a little bit. Like, you got to go away for at least a year. You know what I mean? Like, after you lose, when Hillary lost, everybody, even, even people who were super pro-Hillary were like, damn. She, you know, made it all about Russia and had a thousand excuses and was out there far too soon. Um, but there's definitely this thing that happens where when you lose, of course, naturally, the party apparatus The politicians are going to shy away from you because you lost. They don't want to associate with a loser. They want to keep winning themselves. And, you know, the voters in many instances shy away and are like, damn, we picked a failure. Now, Trump, it might be different because he's got that 30 to 35 percent block that never abandons him ever, 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 ever. But then it gets interesting because if he's got that 30 percent block that never abandons him and he loses the election to Joe Biden, And he sets up Trump TV network. What happens? Like, do all of the people who are Fox News viewers today become Trump TV viewers? Or is it 50% of the Fox News viewers who defect and go to Trump TV and the other 50% stay with the classic Fox News right-wing propaganda? You see what I'm saying? So in other words, even though you have establishment Republicans and you have Trump Republicans even though the way they govern is identical. They're, they're establishment Republicans. They're, they're for the same policies, effectively, with only minor deviations. Even though they agree on policy, you will actually have a rift in the party, which is the biggest rift of my lifetime, where you have those who defend Trump, the of Trump, that version of politics, the no-filter thing, more conspiracy-minded like QAnon people who might think it was stolen from him. You have that wing, and then you'll have the wing of the Republicans who are like, we just got to get past him and get back to normal and you know, put up our own candidates who aren't insane and tweeting 24 hours a day. And so it'll be interesting because in some ways there will be like, we have the culture war, and it's right versus left on that front, but you're going to have a culture war within the culture war. You're going to have the Trump-style supporters, and you're going to have the establishment Republican supporters. And I do think, in many ways, that might fall along um, class lines. You'll have the more middle- and lower-income Republican voters side with Trump and think he got unfairly treated and the election was stolen. Then you'll have the more wealthy Republicans say, Jesus Christ, we just want to get rid of this guy's era, get past him, and move on to a more Mitt Romney-style type of politics. And so there will be a rift. There's definitely a civil war within the Democratic Party. Um, There's more unity behind Biden. But there is also, you know, the the fractures that still exist on important policies, and they will continue to exist. But the Republican Party, if Trump loses, is going to be a mess. And then even if he creates Trump TV, that only makes it more of a mess. So it'll be really interesting to see how all that unfolds. Okay, next. All right, I, w- I hate to do it, but I'm going to do it. Many mainstream news outlets have refused to report on the Hunter Biden story that came from the New York Post. And um, the Washington Post actually admitted what went into that decision in a moment of brutal honesty. Now, before we get to that, I'll show you what they say, which is just honestly, it's a stunning line that they wrote down. Um, but let's talk about this Hunter Biden story, because I have so much to say about it, even though we've already touched on it. When the original story came out in the New York Post, I passed on it. I didn't want to talk about it. I saw it in the morning, and I, and I was like, should I cover this for my show? And then I went through it, and I was like, I'm not going to cover it. Now, you might say, oh, what are you, are you trying to like cover for Hunter and Joe? No, of course not. I've gone after them previously. I've called out the Burisma thing. I think it's clearly corruption. The reason why I originally passed on it was twofold. Number one, we already knew all the stuff about Burisma, and this was just the emails that showed the inner mechanics of it. I don't really care about the mechanics of it. I know it's corrupt. I said it was corrupt from the beginning, so if you show me emails that just show the dynamics of it, i will be like, yeah, but that's an old story. We know about the Burisma thing. We know about the corruption. So we already knew the story. That's thing number one. Thing number two is they coupled it together with those pictures that were just a violation of his privacy. And I was like, I'm not going to cover it and show the pictures, because I don't think these pictures should have been released. There's no news value in it. You're not learning anything. So I passed on the story. I was like, okay, New York Post, I see what you're getting at here, but I'm going to pass on it. It was only after the show that Twitter censored the New York Post story, and I was forced to talk about it, because what am I going to do? Now the story is not even what happened with Hunter. Now the story is the censorship from social media companies. So this is the band effect, as they call it. You made the story bigger by trying to bury it. That's what happened. Now, what are my feelings on today? Basically the same. You want to you wanna leak on corruption. I'm right there with you. That's newsworthy. That's important. That should be exposed. But you want to keep showing private personal pictures. I'm not with you. Like there's a sex tape or something that just came out of Hunter Biden. There's no news value in that. There's no news value in that. You're not owning Joe Biden. If anything, you're just assholes and making people feel more sympathetic to them. So the personal stuff out of bounds they shouldn't release it but that should be like the news outlet should be intelligent enough to make that journalistic decision you don't have the government step in and ban that it's more of do your job as journalists and determine what is not isn't newsworthy now so that's the problem you know with the, with the New York Post and they ran the pictures probably shouldn't have run it right wing hacks I think it was, may, may have been Bannon not sure though who got the hand on the sex tape and released the Hunter sex tape ridiculous okay don't do that but then you have the flip side problem, which is, what do you do with all these legacy media outlets, Washington Post and others, who don't want to discuss the Hunter stuff at all, even the emails of the corruption? Well, then you have them admit it. Take a look. A close look at the evidence shows that neither Biden nor Trump have the facts on their side for now. Take a step back, and the Russian interference of 2016 holds valuable lessons on what to do and what not to do in 2020. We must treat the Hunter Biden leaks as if they were a foreign intelligence operation, even if they probably aren't. So default to, we have no evidence that this is some sort of foreign intelligence operation, but treat it like it's a foreign intelligence operation. And in other words, don't talk about it. Don't cover it. Standard, you don't cover the Panama Papers. You don't cover um, the exposing of war crimes that we got from WikiLeaks and Julian Assange through Chelsea Manning. You don't cover the Snowden leaks, learning about the NSA stuff. If this is the way you approach these things, we're just going to assume it's a hostile foreign intelligence operation and not run it because then it's election interference for something. By the way, even if you grant, well, maybe the information originally came from a nefarious source, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. If it's true, it is newsworthy. Your job is to report the facts. Now, again, you can make editorial judgments on whether or not there's news value in it, but clearly there is news value in corruption, in corruption-related stories. So bottom line, really what they're saying is, listen, we want Joe Biden to win. We support Joe Biden and the corporate Democrats. And so we're going to work backwards from that conclusion and not run stuff that might hurt his campaign. And really... This line of thinking probably originated after 2016, where they thought, oh, my God, the fact that we reported on her emails really hurt her. The fact that we, you know, showed the WikiLeaks stuff really hurt them. Now, by the way, they didn't show it nearly enough, but they did show it because at least back then they were like, we're journalists. I mean, what are we going to do? This is our job. There's a lot of newsworthy stuff in here, like when Hillary said, I have public and private positions. Tell people what they want to hear, and then you do business as usual behind the scenes. You know, we need totally free and open trade borders. This is something she said when the conversation was TPP. Yeah, we need totally free and open trade borders, which would lead to incredible outsourcing, a giant increase in outsourcing. These were all important stories. These were all newsworthy. That's what it was. And so your job as a journalist is to run it. It's newsworthy. Now you have mainstream media outlets saying, I don't care that it's newsworthy. I'm not going to report on it. And my weak excuse will be, even if there's a small chance it's a foreign intelligence operation, that's why I'm not going to run it. They're admitting it probably isn't. They're admitting there's no evidence to believe that it's from Russia or whatever, but they're like, let's just use that as a crutch to not cover the thing that's going to hurt our preferred candidate. The thing that's so frustrating is they're pretending like this is some sort of objective, neutral, you know, serious person decision when really they're just partisan hacks. Now, final point is this. Because some people might listen to this so far and be like, might not agree with me. I hate Trump just as much as you do. But the way you cover this is, hey, here's the stuff with news value in the Hunter leaks, right? You could, none of the personal pictures I agree don't run that. Got it. Here's the stuff that's legit. Here's the corruption angle of it. Here's the information on that. Trump is using this as his main line of attack against Biden. It's not working. One of the reasons why it's probably not working is, here's here's a detailed breakdown of the Trump family corruption. Trump made $73 million from foreign investors as president. And then, oh, would you look at that? A lot of the stuff he does happens to benefit foreigners. So, you know, for example, there's a business relationship between Trump and Saudi Arabia through his hotel in D.C. And then he turns around and gives a multi-billion dollar weapons deal to Saudi Arabia. He used to blame them for 9-11. Now he's giving them weapons deals that they're using for a genocide in Yemen. That's corruption. Jared and Ivanka made $135 million in one year in 2018. Let's go look at the source of all that money and then who they're doing favors for in return. We already know, because there's been reporting on some of it, what's happening with Israel, him taking money from Israeli banks, for example, and then they're super-serving Israel in terms of the policy direction that we go. So, in other words, you could say, here's the corruption with Hunter and Joe in Ukraine, and here's the sketchy thing and how he got the payment and all that. You can and should report on that. But you could also say, the Trump family is just as corrupt. It's not more corrupt, and here are the details of that. Instead of doing that, what do they do? They don't bring up the Trump corruption, and they just don't report on the Biden corruption. So they're partisan hacks, and they and they pretend like they're not, and it's disgusting, and it's so sad that as a fucking... YouTube loudmouth, I get to come out here and run circles around these clowns? I don't want to be the person who's like the adult in the room who is giving the more serious take. I'm just an asshole. Like, what am I? What am I? I'm like a commentator slash jokester. I'm like a semi-comedian with how I do my show. And I'm supposed to be the serious one to tell you here's how they're messing up? It's ridiculous. It's a joke. So they should be ashamed of themselves. This is not how you do it. And um, the media culture is totally broken in this country beyond repair. I don't think there's any hope for mainstream media ever getting back to any semblance of rationality. But the way it's supposed to work is that which has news value is what you run with. It doesn't even matter what the source is. It can actively be somebody who's hostile and saying, I have nefarious motives. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If it's newsworthy, you're supposed to run with it. And they're not doing it because they want to protect Biden. And it's really sad. All right. Final story of the day, y'all. Final story of the day. So I have some uh, more censorship of the left that nobody's going to talk about. We're one of very, very few outlets that ever really brings this up. This is from Rania Kalik. She said, I interviewed Anya Parampal about the socialist victory in Bolivia on Instagram Live. When I tried to post it to Instagram after, I received a message that it's restricted to, quote, protect our community. Protect them from what, Instagram? That's incredible. So that's just outright censorship because they're talking about Bolivia and they're doing it from the perspective of, you know, Evo Morales and his party, um, got a raw deal. There was originally a coup, and now they came back and won overwhelmingly. And so it's not really the line that the U.S. government likes to hear. And so it was censored because they want to protect our community from what? From conversation about socialist winning, democracy. It really is something. They've, they've gone further now than I've ever seen them go before. Um, then we also have this. This came out at about the same time. Uh, this is a friend of the show, Bhaskar Sankara. He's a great guy of Jacobin. He says the following Facebook is now blocking our videos for violating, quote, community standards that trigger certain keywords. Was it the Marxist, Bolivia, or Biden? So, in other words, somehow they're violating community standards, and it's either because they use the word Marxist, or Bolivia, or Biden. My guess is it's either Marxist or Bolivia. Um, And it says, your video is blocked and can't be viewed by others. Guys, this is an established left show. This is an established left show. And this is what's happening. Now, you might say, well, come on, Kyle, these might be isolated cases. Maybe it was a mistake or whatever. They've also done this to Abby Martin. They've done it to her a number of times, I believe. Uh, They've also done it to Max Blumenthal... Ben Norton, and the Gray Zone. The Gray Zone is their project. They've done it to them as well. You know, you guys know we've talked about it endlessly on this show, but the algorithm is not very kind to what's called borderline content like me. In other words, he's uncontrollable. You know, he's a wild, loudmouth. We don't know what he's going to say about politics. They don't want me running alongside CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. They deprioritize shows like mine – in the algorithm, so we don't really spread to many new people. If you watch the show on a regular basis, you might get some recommended and stuff like that, but if you're not already watching it, it's harder for our show to grow because they don't recommend us to new people. They used to do it all the time. You know, we were gaining, I'm not kidding when I say 30,000 or 40,000 subscribers a month in the last election, and now we gain like 6,000 subscribers a month. I'm the same guy, doing the same show, and it's just that Now the rules are not favorable, and they kind of hold us back a little bit. But a lot of this stuff goes on, man. And then, you know, we have the famous Reddit example where they banned Reddit the Donald, but then they also turned around and banned the Chapo Trap House Reddit. Why? Because this is how it works. This is the way censorship works. You start with the people who are, in some instances, genuinely bad, somebody like Alex Jones, how terrible he is, And you don't get that many people that object to it because they're like, I kind of get it. I mean, that guy's insane, and he says insane things, and he puts people at risk and all this stuff. You start there, and then what just happened was, without you realizing it, you've established the precedent. What's the precedent? The precedent is the heads of these social media companies, unaccountable billionaires, they get to determine who can say stuff and who can't. Why should they ever get veto power over stuff we could say? That's like giving veto power to politicians as to what Ken and Campy said. Why would you do that? We're supposed to have free speech. We're supposed to abide by the principle of free speech. And corporate censorship is just as bad as government censorship because the new public square is all these social media outlets. So you start with somebody that it's like, okay, I get it. He's a bad dude. But then you're already going down that slippery slope at 1,000 miles an hour. And next thing you know, the Chapo Trap House, Reddit is banned. Next thing you know, Jacobin is banned. Next thing you know, they make it harder to find my videos. Because when you are for censorship, you're saying the powerful should choose what is not isn't acceptable. And guess what? The powerful are never going to like the left. Because inherent in being a lefty is questioning power structures. So here we are. So here we are. I warned you, I warned you every step of the way that if you were cheering on any sort of censorship or deplatforming, it immediately was going to come for you. Immediately. Because you might say, oh, my God, the white supremacists and the fascists and the this and the that, and that's who we got to take down. But how can you not realize that they instantly flip it on Antifa and Marxists and anti-war voices and the list goes on and on? Because you think your political positions are like, duh, obviously I'm right. There's a lot of people who don't agree with you. And guess what? The people in control, the people who run these social media companies certainly don't agree with you. So you just gave more power to your enemies to silence you. Congratulations. Okay. All right guys, I'm Dunzo.
1: I love y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a good rest of the day. Peace.